Greetings, this is Jason Hill, and this is the podcast version of Into the Gap, which airs every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Central on WCGO Radio, 1590 a.m. and 95.9 FM in Chicago. Let's get to this week's episode. Here's my co-host, Mike Shrek. This is Into the Gap with my co-host, Jason Hill. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm freezing. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Saturday, the day after Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah, February 15th. Yeah. We're celebrating wokeness today. Well, it was so cold last night. My mom said to me, cold indoors, population explosion coming. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, you want to introduce our guest? Well, we'll ask our guest to introduce himself. We have Jeff Joseph in yeah. the studio today, the privilege of having the editorial director of Luckbach Magazine. So, Jeff, introduce yourself. To... Good morning. It hey, is man. cold. How you doing? Welcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, welcome. I came in on a Stevenson and came down, you know, Lakeshore Drive. Yeah. That's always a beautiful way to come in from the burbs, you know? Yeah. And it was, uh, I just even with the gray sky and everything, the city of Chicago is really beautiful. It is. So, I saw it this morning. I thought, ah, this is cool, man, coming in the city, acting like an adult. Partial adult for a while, you know, introducing our friend, yeah. talking who, about really heavy stuff. Tell us who you are, Jeff, and about your magazine. And Well, uh, Luck, Luckbox Magazine, I would start with that. It's, yeah. it's not the typical name for a magazine for gamblers and poker players. Is that what it's really for? The reference, yeah. a Luckbox is somebody who is the undeserving recipient of a fortunate outlier income okay so in poker it's frequently used you know as as it, on the river if you get a catches a river yeah, yeah your luck box right okay uh any anyone who receives an outlier um an outlier out outcome that you know, isn't something they earned or worked for so there, there's an irony right there because this is predominantly first and foremost a financial publication where much of the content much of the editorial each issue is intended to teach people to be smarter about mm -hmm. investments and, and particularly through a lens of probability. So to use that, uh, that name was a little counterintuitive for me at first, but I grew into it. Okay. Uh, cool. Everything about the, the magazine really is um, ultimately as editorial director, I do direct that, but I, the, the name came from outside and I didn't get it at first and now I completely embrace it. Yeah, no, yeah. that's cool. That's a fun name. All right. All right. So tell us, something about one of the issues that I found very, very fascinating was um, the edition that came out in November of 2019, uh, Betting on the Future. And there, you it's futuristic forecasts and warnings. But uh, something that your, that your magazine is, is touching on, which is called Political Prediction Markets. So tell our listeners what, what this is all about. This is something quite phenomenal, and people can make money from it. Uh, you want to explain to our viewers what, what is the political prediction market all about? It has, not that I need another hobby or something else taking my time, but it's become something I've been fascinated with. We That November issue, and every issue of Luckbox Magazine is really theme-oriented. We, we just released our China issue. We've done uh, big, bad technology issue, big media, uh, the high anxiety issue focused on the anxiety economy, and uh introduced THC and CBD and other elements and things from gravity blankets, everything that we need to make us, you know, feel cocooned like, and, and the people who are taking advantage of those, uh, of those concepts. And every issue is really narrowly focused on a theme, uh, the side hustle gig economy issue. So in the futurism issue, we not only focused on the future um, and with predictive forecasts, looking at what lies ahead 10 years out and 15 years out, but we also 
chose to take that umbrella into looking at the futures markets and different evolutions that are going for traders in the futures market. And a subset of that is a new new thing called prediction markets. Well, there's nothing new about prediction markets. They've actually been around for a mm-hmm. while. But what is new, particularly with this market, which is predictit.org, it's a technically a non-for-profit. It was launched out of New Zealand by Victoria University for the purposes of crowds of, of gathering data and intelligence on crowdsourced prediction models. And you've seen it, you've read it, that there is a wisdom to the crowd and that ironically, uh, you know, crowd-based predictive models tend to be more accurate than analyst-driven ones. The breakthrough has been in the area of earnings estimates for public companies, like, you know, if uh, Tesla is reporting its earnings, earnings forever, S&P had something called First Call. And First Call and S&P were the two that were doing earnings estimates. And then somebody came along with a crowdsourced predictive market for earnings releases and let everybody like you and me and your producer could make their predictions based on what they believed earnings estimates were going to be far more accurate than what Wall Street was coming out with. Mm -hmm. And that kind of set the tone for looking at predictive models. Who are the constituents? Who are the constituents that you eliminate when you're using a prediction model and what subsequent accuracy you expect to come from that? Mm -hmm. And the researchers over at Victoria University went deep into the idea of prediction markets. Before that, the Iowa election markets existed, and you could actually make a bet, uh, real money. In-trade existed for a while, but finally that shut down. But this platform, predictit.org, the bottom line allows you to bet real money, up to $850 on any one contract, and you wage wager on political outcomes. So... Uh, I pulled it up right now while mm-hmm. we're speaking here, and the number one traded market at predictit.org is who will be the 2020 Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. As of today, over 104 million shares have traded. And since these are binary options, and all that means is you can buy it as low as a cent, yeah. and when the outcome occurs, it's worth a dollar if you're right. Yeah. But you can trade it in between. Mm-hmm. And those pennies, those decimals, if you're buying today, Bernie Sanders is 44 cents in that market. And what that means is the crowd is telling you that there was a 44% probability that he's going to win. That he's going to win. Yeah. And Michael Bloomberg is 29 cents today. What's Amy? Amy is, that's a great question. Amy is 5 cents right now. I would so, buy that. Well, and so think about that. You would? Yeah. That's a 20, 20 to 1 return. If On 20 to 1? I, I, I'd buy yeah. that. Because yeah. I think she's, gonna, she's the compromise candidate. Mm-hmm. which I think is what's going to happen with the Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that means over $50 million has been traded in this I know, market. it's remarkable. It's, it's remarkable. It's legal yeah. under an exemption from the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we've gotten into this market, there's a whole ecosystem around it. There's highly engaged traders. And we launched a podcast called The Political Trade. We just launched yeah. it two weeks ago. Yeah. And where we bring on super traders that are actually making a living or substantial uh, five-figure income mm-hmm. from part-time trading. Mm-hmm. And uh, they teach basically their strategies, what they do, how they do it, and we talk about the markets. And the interesting thing about this, and it's called The Political Trade. It's a podcast available wherever you find your podcast. Mm-hmm. We get to speak about politics in a way that everybody else is troubled by it. So there was a recent conversation, and I received a couple letters about it where we were talking about the vice presidential uh, market. Mm-hmm. 
And I made the case for Kamala Harris on the premise that, well, if your three leading Democratic candidates are white men, they're going to have to, you know, yeah. appeal to a diverse Democratic coalition and, and check another box. And ideally, a black female might be a, a perfect candidate. That kind of conversation really isn't, ex- you know, that popular and accepted in other venues. But we got to speak honestly about some of the decisions that you know, people make politically. And uh, I enjoyed it. So we got a little bit of pushback from it because my guests said, well, really, if you want to check a lot of boxes, Tammy Duckworth. Well, you know? this leads me to a <laughs> right. question. Like, what? So <laughs> what is the criterion that— I'm or, not even going to go there, but all the boxes do get checked. Well, and, and the point—and my point yeah. was, in the conversation that we had afterwards is— we shouldn't be precluded from having these conversations because right. you know they're being done by political insiders, yeah. right? Well, you know, it's so funny that it speaks to the power of identity politics, which is not about ideas. Well, that's a question I was going to ask. I yeah. mean, what, what criterion or what criteria are people using when they invest in these predictive markets? Is it, is it gut-based? Is it based on polling? Is it based on the pundits' news analyses, which are worth crap? But, but, but sort of what, what is the criterion that people – because if I'm going to invest, I want to know what experts have to say. And I don't want to just rely on my gut. Well, th- that's a great question also, and it's one we've been examining. That's why we bring on guests who are not political analysts and talking heads that you'd find on the cable networks – but actually either pollsters, statisticians, or active traders exploiting these markets. And these markets are very exploitable because they're inefficient. Mm -hmm. And they're inefficient because of what you're alluding to. And that is that most people, and this is my sense of it, having been in this market now for six or seven months, most of the people are trading or making their bets emotionally. I was going to say, it's a, it's all emotion. Emotion. And if yeah. that's the case, there's ripe opportunity. Oh there isn't God. a – I've introduced <laughs> at least a half a dozen people to this this market, and mm-hmm. every one of them has made money since. Mm-hmm. And material money, you know, yeah. because so many people are making emotional decisions about their candidates of choice as, as opposed to thinking about it through a probability and investment lens. Can you sell short? Yes. Those are called buying no shares. Mm. Oh wow! So, and which which in itself is a is a very attractive um, yeah market because for example in three different markets I own five no shares I I have no's on everybody yeah except maybe one or two people because yeah. you can only lose one no so right. we got we got to take, take a break. break Jason Hill here and I want to let you know that you're listening to the podcast version of Into the Gap which airs every Saturday from nine to ten a.m. Central on WCGO Radio. Tune in live from 1590 AM and 95.9 FM, the Smart Talk app. Tune in or wcgoradio.com. The podcast is available from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Find it, rate it, and subscribe. If you'd like to get in touch about the show or inquire about sponsorship opportunities and rates, please reach out to my co-host Mike at MikeShrek at gmail.com. Okay, back to the show now. Here's my co-host, Mike Schreck. Hey, we're back. This is Mike, Jason, and our guest, Jeff Joseph, and this is Into the Gap. Welcome, Welcome back. back. I'm, I'm so, back. Yeah, so Jay, you wanted to get into... Uh... Well, the new issue deals with a stealth war in, with China. And um, so they're, they're here, Jeff, here are some uh, interesting... Uh, there's a, a, a China specialist, uh, Daniel Greenwald, who writes of various outlets. And he he has put forth in a a week ago, some interesting statistics that China's birth rate is 1.6 at 
0.48 births per 1,000 people. Uh, The bottom line, he said, is that the poor birth rate has its origins in China's poor marriage rate, and that by the year 2020, um, 2030, rather, um, there will be the average age of China's population will be 65, and that by 2035, China's pension will have run out, and that China has built its expansionist empire on what he calls a decadent materialism. So we really shouldn't be that word in America because China has sort of overextended itself, uh, annex, annexing Africa, a lot of the Caribbean, uh, when it has a precipitous declining uh, birth rate. Um, there's just, in, 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 in ordinary language, there's going to be a bunch of old people hmm. in over 65, uh, more people over 65 than 14 years old in the next 10, 10 to 15 years in China. And that's just not a sustainable uh, 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 phenomenon. So should we really be worried about a country that is building a Silk Road around the world when it doesn't even have the guaranteed labor force to finish that Silk Road, much less a stealth war? Well, there's a lot of layers to that question. And, and I would begin with the irony of pointing out the population growth of China, which the China's, Chinese officials, particularly the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, mm. is very much aware of right now, which is why they ended in 2014 the one-child nation policy mm-hmm. that existed since 1997. And now, in a complete reversal of its state-sponsored propaganda, almost thinking that the Chinese have no memory of what state policy was, they are aggressively promoting multiple children. They've literally painted over the signs that were everywhere because that's part of how the propaganda works on billboards and, and painted on bricks throughout, throughout the cities. Those signs now refer to the benefits of having multiple children. And in this recent issue of Luckbox, we do review One Child Nation, the documentary that's on uh, Netflix. And if you haven't seen it, it's really extraordinary because you, they interviewed people who were partly responsible, like midwives, for carrying out this policy. And one woman, 50 to 60,000 forced abortions. Oh, my God. No regrets because it was state policy. So it speaks to the power of the indoctrination of that kind of propaganda. And it also speaks to the manner in which uh, the CCP might be able to reverse its course. So... As to whether or not they're a threat, listen, they're a threat because they're engaging us on multiple fronts right now that harm American and Western and democratic interests. As to will they take over the role of being the, the number one superpower, that, that's very questionable. But they don't want to achieve that, and that is their goal. They consider the last century to be this, the, the lost century, the failed century, and Part of po- party policy is that this century is the century of retribution, and the retribution is squarely against us. Mm-hmm. And that has been released in papers called Document 99 that that were released inadvertently that, that shed some light on what the CCP's broader ambitions are, and that is to regain its foothold against what they thought was a disgraceful century at the hands of uh, predominantly American and U.S. interests. So 
when you look at everything they do, whether it's the patent infringement or the censorship issues, the privacy issues, what's going on with Huawei, the 5G company that is rolling out Huawei or 5G across the, the world, and um, or if you, you or if you want to look at as you refer to the Silk Road initiative, it's really the, the currently it's called the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a commitment by the CCP to spend up to $4 trillion on the infrastructure of other countries outside of China. Mm-hmm. And they do this specifically for one reason. It's not just to direct trade back towards China, but it's to be on the balance sheets and to have to be issuing debt, in essence, to other countries so they can extract favor from them. Mm-hmm. And and an example of that is what they did in Sri Lanka at a port called with a begins with an H that I, I, I can never pronounce, but they lent Sri Lanka a lot of money as they issued debt to the United States, but Sri Lanka didn't pay it back, so they took over their largest port for ninety years. So now China owns the largest port in Sri Lanka, which is a key port for trade and military purposes, and it's just part of what the whole Belt Road Initiative is about. It's about mm-hmm. spreading its influence and directing trade. And back to China and allowing them to be able to exert influence politically and economically within other countries. So the Chinese Communist Party is basically set up the same way the old five families in New York were set up. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. In, in many ways, yeah. yeah. Um, think think about what they're doing right now with social scoring. Mm-hmm. So social scoring is yeah. it's not, not that's not a Black Mirror episode. That's something that's really happening in in China. To the extent that if um, the biggest concern of our State Department is that if you are a Chinese student attending Brown or Harvard, where recently a professor Mm -hmm. uh, was found to be on the payroll for millions of dollars by the CCP, Mm -hmm. um, and and you go to work for Google, Mm -hmm. that if you want your parents back home in China to maintain a high social score... You bet, which is important because it affects all aspects of your life, particularly mm-hmm. any leisure you might have. You better be responsive to any requests for information that the CCP may have of you while you are working at a U.S. technology company. Doesn't this also come into effect, like the the way you respond on social media and things like that, and what you promote and that type of thing? Yeah. So they they scrape. Well, first of all, social media is very, very limited, as we know, mm-hmm. right? The cover which we did was, which was a parody of Tank Man, yeah. And um, th- as you have heard, that that image is not even seen in China. Yeah. They 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 are not able to pull up Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. They don't know what even happened there. So social media is very limited, but they do scrape it. They do watch it very, very carefully. And yes, that all contributes to your social score. But but my my question is still. I still want a, a deeper answer to the question, which is with the with the um, RPC uh, declining, um, with you know, with the Republic of China's <clears throat> declining work workforce, will will the RPC uh, PRC be able to sustain its growth as its population ages? I'm I'm familiar with the argument that that you cited in that contention. Yeah. One of the unique responses to that was. First of all, the average Chinese laborer makes $7,500, so paying off their pension yeah. is not going to be a particularly large burden. But in the same way, you could say, as perhaps Andrew Yang articulated well, one of the largest problems facing our country is the loss of jobs due to automation. 
and retraining that workforce. And since China is clearly on the cutting edge, particularly in the Shenzhen territory, which is their Silicon Valley, of technology, that they may be able to offset their population growth with efficiencies that actually reduce reduce their debt and obligations to their populace because they'll have a smaller unemployed workforce. The Xinjiang, so, that's the Muslim area, right? Well, well, no, just just in general. But just, but from my understanding, they're trying to actually suppress the 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 birth rates in that area, right? Well, that and that's another. That's probably the most poignant and compelling story that we have in this issue is by Rashan Abbas, who Abbas, who is a an activist on behalf of the Uyghur Muslims. And mm. There's about 10 million Uyghur Muslims uh, in the world, but unfortunately, about four million live in China, and they are being aggressively persecuted. They are being interned in, in what they call re-education camps. Mm-hmm. The estimates are as high as 3 million, but nobody thinks there's less than 1 million. There is a, a genocide and mass rape uh, aspect that's going on, whereas the Chinese men, when, when the Muslim men are incarcerated, and they are currently incarcerated right now, um, that the women are living alone and the and the men are sent to the homes to start purifying that population. Mm-hmm. And that's all. Uh, this is all documented. Human Rights Watch is very much aware of it. The New York Times began to break a similar story on this uh, not too long ago. And we have an extensive piece by a woman whose sister was adopted, uh, abducted 18 months ago. She's a doctor in China, doesn't need to be re-educated about anything, but she hasn't been seen for 18 months, and she doesn't know if she's alive or dead. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, I'm curious about the purifying of that population, what that actually means. It's something that occurred back, you know, uh, the German population did it as well some time ago. The idea is that they have children with these women and try to, um, you know, it's a it's forced rape. And it, yeah. it, it is accounted for in this story. One of the things that I'm really getting is, and I got it from a cover here, um, and, and, and I, if I take this off track, bring me back in, okay? No, no, no. But, but one of the things I'm seeing is, um, and it, it's going on here, it, it, there's this belief, and I, and I think it, it's, it's prevalent, that there's this belief in our country that freedom is entitled to us, you know, that we're entitled to being free and there's never a threat to it. And what I'm getting is here's China, a huge, powerful nation. And everything they're doing is to limit and reduce the amount of freedom individuals have. And I don't think we understand the gift we have here and the exceptional opportunity we have here for free speech. And also, as <laughs> Dave Chappelle said, the Second Amendment in case the first one doesn't work, right? right, right. And, and, I, I, and that's kind of the idea behind the show, to really celebrate that idea of freedom. Yeah. But to really get how freedom is not free and it's not guaranteed. And what's going on here can also, is because of the globalization of everything, can become a threat here yeah. for a lot of different reasons, you know? So I, I, that's what I'm really impacted it, by. It, it was a fascinating deep dive for us because yeah. we we used as a primary guide, and it's a book I would recommend, it's Stealth War mm-hmm. by um, retired Air Force Brigadier General John Spaulding, yeah. and that's a relatively new book, where he speaks about the stealth war that China has engaged with us in on multiple fronts. Yeah. So everything from... The Belt and Road Initiative to censorship, IP infringement. Yeah. And we're halfway through already. So 
Yeah. yeah, time flies when you're. Time flies when you're when wearing you're f- a really cool scarf. Yeah, and you when know. you're well, I, 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 you look very I, European today. It well, is a nice I, scarf. I thank like you. I'm feeling. I got it in China actually. Did you really? <laughs> I did get it in ironically. China. Did you really? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a fake um, Louis Vuitton. They can't even spell Vuitton right. They have to. Did they spell it wrong? Well, they had to for legalistic purposes, oh, okay. I guess. But um, <laughs> I got it in China. Um, so. Um, Transitioning a little bit into the issue that deals with fake news and fake media. Hmm. Um, it's actually, you know what? It's actually not fake media. It's just untrue media. What does that mean? Well, fake means it doesn't exist. So it does exist, mm. you know? So let's be specific here. It's just untrue. We're, we're not being straight about it. Like people are lying to it and we're taking it like it's real. You know? Well, it does, to use a big philosophical word, it does have an ontological or metaphysical Ooh. status. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's it, it exists in the minds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I guess, yeah, the, the, the news could be fake because the news is made up. So it's made up, yeah. The, the, the actual news is fake, but the news media is real. Right. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this is a stupid conversation. No, no, no. It's not stupid because no. I want to bring it to something yeah. that was, was, was mentioned in it, in one of the articles that um, I, that I found by one of the writers that I found fascinating, which was that um, in the final analysis, um, when it comes to trading, the news doesn't really matter. And I read the article twice, so I won't reconstruct the argument for viewers because that would disincentivize them from buying or subscribing to the magazine. But um, in some sense, <clears throat> it struck me as problematic because we hear we're bombarded with stimuli in terms of news every day and we 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 do notice that it, that news has an effect on trading the stock market albeit a temporary effect until something positive happens and the market rebounds in some sense so explain in some sense the 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 complicated phenomenon of why in some cases it is the case i think that the news does matter in terms of trading, but what this author was trying to make in the larger context of why, at, in the bottom at the bottom line, yeah. it doesn't really matter when it comes to trading. It's a, it is complicated because clearly there is news that is actionable that does matter. the The underlying reference there would be to the efficient market hypothesis that says that the price discovery, which is the mechanism that markets are intended to achieve is a direct result of of all the news that's already in in the market. So once that news is out there, it's already reflected in the price. Mm. That's what the efficient market... So there's a cynicism of the efficient market hypothesis that says news doesn't matter because if you know it and I know it, that that should have already found its way into the price, right? And that's true to a, a very large extent. But what does matter is binary events where new news is released mm-hmm. and interpreting what impact that has. So when there is a new jobs number or a new earnings report uh, is released from a particular company and you look through the weeds of that report and they say, yeah, our revenue's up, but our our adoption or engagement's down and our, our, our rate of um, continued conversion is, is lower and our expenses are going higher and we have some debt coming due on this day, all those things will impact your balance sheet. And that's why there are analysts who can, you know, who look through this and, and try to make a difference. But generally speaking, 
in the broad sense in a highly efficient market mm-hmm. like the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq Exchange, it is hard to have an information edge that is sustainable that you can continue to exploit profit opportunities mm-hmm. because you're you're acting on news that everybody else has as well. That is not the case in a prediction market like the political prediction markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that firsthand in Iowa when one of the super traders, and that is these active traders that are using this predicted platform, called me up and said, just so you know, Sanders is not going to win Iowa. Um, and I'm like, well, how do you know? He said, we know. And and so that means there's inside information. This is a non-reg. You know that every campaign person is probably trading on predicted. Every pollster probably has because it's a non-regulated market. Mm-hmm. They have access to information. It's unique information. And they're probably using it. Yeah. So that that's interesting, you know, in the world of a regulated and non-regulated market. But generally speaking, with respect to the capital markets, it is hard to take news to um, identify an immediate information advantage. What you use news for is for larger trends and making longer-term decisions. Bonds going higher, are they going lower based on interest rate or Fed, Fed policy? That is something you can extrapolate and act upon that will have a material impact on your portfolio value if you've identified the proper trend. So your average guy who's like my brother, who's a computer scientist, but he's a day trader. You're saying that when he, because we talk about this all the time, and so when he sits in front of his computer in his pajamas and he's <laughs> privately trading, he's he's the news. There's the news has no. I'm trying to just break it down for the, the listeners out there who are, you know, who are, who are thinking about like trading, investing, has no effect on him at all. He is probably, and I can't speak to your brother, but he is probably either a technical trader looking Mm -hmm. at charts and patterns and trading those patterns, Mm -hmm. or he is a momentum trader Mm -hmm. where he is investing on a daily basis wherever there is momentum. Mm -hmm. Tesla's up. You see volume increasing. That means that more people are going to follow that trade. I'm going to to take it for another dollar or two. Mm -hmm. Or he is a, a volatility trader that uses... IV, implied volatility, as a primary resource, the old where there's chaos or volatility, there's opportunity, truly applies to day traders. So, Mm -hmm. and interestingly, our Luckbox magazine falls under the umbrella of the Tasty Trade financial network. I don't know if you know Tasty Trade, but if you go to tastytrade.com during any market day, Mm -hmm. you'll see the equivalent of CNBC online, but it's much wonkier. It's, It's a... it's a very geeky financial platform that provides real-time, not talking head commentary about the market, but how to trade specific issues based on where they are right at that moment. Yeah. So it's predominantly options trading. It's the kind of thing that your that your your brother you said might be uh, watching because that it, you can trade volatility, you can trade momentum, you can trade technicals, but most day traders are not trading news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, they're looking at other. Other. other trends and patterns to, to stress. Yeah. Mike, I know that you're a, one of the issues covers the, the, the Google, Amazon, you're big. Yeah. Yeah. The, you want to yeah, talk, you want to talk, yeah, you want yeah, to ask, delve into that? Really look at like, yeah. So we had a guy on last week who was talking about that monopolies basically just truncating it, that he's a believer that Facebook and 
uh, Amazon and all these guys, their monopolies are actually good for us. Uh, I, I'm having a hard time buying into that. I'd love to get your take on the whole idea of monopolies. And oh, you're you're referring to Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, I know Jonathan. I like Jonathan a lot. Yeah. By the way, he's a he's a great thinker. Yeah, and and I, I'd say the only thing to uh, 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 another way to answer your question, the only thing I found attractive about Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. was her her <laughs> willingness to take on the likes of Google, Facebook, and yeah. Amazon, because I don't believe, with respect to privacy and data mm-hmm. that those companies should be left unchecked. Right. Uh, the manner in which they, they utilize our data. Remember, you know, the whole, whole adage uh, that we are the customer there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we are the product and we are, right? Google, Amazon, and Facebook are acquiring data. They're using our data. They're selling our data. And that's the backbone of how they make money. And it doesn't matter that the service is free. They make much more from our data than, you know, than than we get in return. Mm-hmm. So I, I strongly believe that from with respect to data privacy, that those companies should be checked and there should be much more regulation as to how they use our data. Nope. Um, but the larger issue about, you know, should they be broken up purely based on size for, you know, kind of a, a libertarian-minded person like I am, that's hard to make that argument. I, I understand why Jonathan comes in and says, hey, you know, they're... Driving innovation, they're mm-hmm. funding innovation. They're... No, I get where he comes from. I'm just there's so much mass, and and, and you even see it like with Bloomberg, he's got so much money, mm-hmm. right? And when there's that much money, being from Chicago, like my whole life, uh, I get concerned about the corruptibility of things, you know. And corruptibility, I think, is the biggest threat to our freedom. And so this is more of a I'm taking your this is more philosophical position. Than it is a, a purely financial one, you know, and I get concerned there, mm-hmm. and and because then we have to depend on the ethics and the morality of the people running it, right. and and that I'm not so sure I'm willing to sign off on the ethics and morality of Sheryl uh, Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. I and mean, we've seen enough reason why. In yeah, fact, you know? in fact, that issue um, is filled with that. We really yeah. look at all the ways that they have violated the public trust and uh, for for. For their own corporate interest, and uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Well, who should be the oversight committee? Are you comfortable with a government no, it, administrative it, body that has its own implicit yeah. built-in bias? The, I don't have the answer. I'm yeah. just asking the question. I really yeah. don't have the answer because I true at my true in my heart as a libertarian, right? And and Jonathan makes this good point that you know everything changes over time, and and how long will they be in charge? You know, it it's probably going to technology will break through and they'll go down too, but there's just there's an impact along the way, and the focus becomes on winning, and then it becomes on winning. Like you see it clearly with Bloomberg, it's winning at all costs. He's going to go down with the ship, and and and, and what's that in service of? And I I, I don't know. I, but, I it's really a question for me. But Mike, we I think part of Jonathan's point, which which he was getting from Ayn Rand, is that mm-hmm. all monopolies in a totally laissez-faire society, mm-hmm. monopolies do not exist. All monopolies exist when a government interferes. Coercively and introduces a pat uh, a, a, some sort of mandate that says a competitor cannot enter a field. Yeah. So we allowed Facebook. We patronized uh, Amazon mm-hmm. and Facebook and Google. We gave them a license, a permission. We don't have a problem. Yeah. Those of us who are on Facebook, we don't have a problem with them having data on us. Yeah. Right. So we don't have a problem trading our privacy. If you don't like it, just don't. My mother's not on Facebook. Yeah. I have tons of friends who are in the tech industry who are not on Facebook. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I guess that's what it becomes. Maybe I'm just too lazy. I don't know. It's just I, I'm just starting to see, the, just starting to have these questions now. Yeah, and and confronted by them, and I don't have the answer. I don't know what the right answer is, and I'm I'm looking to people that are much brighter and much more experienced than I to to inform that. Our yeah. guest is the is it editor or publisher of editorial director editorial publisher. director of Luckbox. So check this out. It's a very cool magazine. A paper magazine, like you actually hold it in your hands, <laughs> and it's, it's it has a nice textural feel. It's, to it, it really does. It's a it's, cool magazine. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, a very you. cool magazine. Thank what, you. Who does like, the artwork for you guys? You got a guy in house? We have a our own creative director, but our covers we usually commission from outside illustrators. Yeah, they're awesome. As a, the the case of the ones in, in front of you right now. Yeah. And and as long as we're talking about the magazine, it is uh, obviously it's it's on print nationwide on newsstand, and uh, has a large and growing print audience. But we make the magazine free digitally. So okay. an actual digital edition, you just go to getluckbox.com. You just put in an email, and you'll receive the digital edition in the flipbook format. Uh, and that's that's completely free. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, this is very cool. This is really – this is it, it, there's just something really enjoyable about it, you know? Well, it's, it's very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and, you know, so – but, but uh, Jeff, what – what do you want to accomplish with this magazine? What is your what is the philosophy behind it? I mean, we know what the content is because we've been talking a lot about the content. Um, but in terms of your, um, you know, your aspirational uh, um, fulfillments or 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 your aspirations for the magazine, what 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 do you want to see happen? What what sort of sense of, you want to change people's sensibilities? Is it a sort of normative agenda you have here? Is it just purely informative? Magazines are are interesting because they're so imperfect, right? You, you know, I, I don't think myself or anyone on my editorial team has ever liked any one of our issues because we find things that we would have done differently. Yeah. And I, it, there, it's very much like software, right? You, every every new edition is like a new release of software where you're trying to get better and better. So V1, V2, V3, V4, and that work in progress then is always focused on trying to improve your quality. Mm-hmm. And an audience, so it's audience acquisition and and just do a better job at bringing stories that matter to people who want to be informed about trends and probabilities in capital markets and in life. We're not strictly a financial publication. We have a lot of lifestyle editorial, but we do it in a manner that's contextual to the topic, so it doesn't appear gratuitous. You know, here's the top ten travel destinations. That's not consistent with, you know, the broader theme. So in the China issue, we did do, uh, and we, because we like spirits, we we did a review of the world's most popular spirit. So Mm. most people don't know it, but Baijiu, which is spelled B-A-I-G-I-U, is the world's most consumed spirit. It's distilled from rice and sorghum. And it's really brutal, by the way. We went, we went, <laughs> and, you didn't, and you didn't bring us any? No, I, I didn't. It I, like I should have because I would have gladly gladly let you keep it. We went, <laughs> we went to Chinatown. We bought four bottles ranging in quality. There was one we really liked. and and But the more pedestrian conventional ones were just really hard to drink. But it is, it's a clear white liquid. It is widely consumed. And it's reviewed in there. And, um, and that was a lot of fun. So, But that lifestyle editorial was within the context of our broader theme, which was a China issue. So that's what we're trying to do. So you asked, and again, I sidestepped your question a little bit. There isn't a broader philosophical ambition. I'd like to do that perhaps through another publication where I'm trying to achieve something I've always thought 
you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the First Amendment as well, and I'm I'm appalled by what we're seeing with respect to speech, particularly on campuses. You know, Jason, yeah. I, I, there's hours of questions I'd love to ask you, and a magazine about free speech is something that I'd like to do. That'd be a kind of little side project, but right now we're very focused on growing our audience, uh, looking, teaching people to look at at issues through a lens of probability, assign a probability to everything as opposed to just an opinion, put a probability around it. And that's the underlying principle behind all of our editorial is trying to look at issues through a probability lens mm. instead of a, a biased lens. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. But there should be a magazine about free speech. That would be awesome. Wouldn't be. It, right? I wonder if it would sell. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what we were talking yeah. about there is, is there, there's a, you know, my, my concern is that there's just, we just take it for granted. Like it's always going to be there. Like it's, oh, of course we got free speech. We could say whatever we want, but I'm offended by what you said. So don't ever say that again. Yeah. Well, yeah. so it's, there's not free speech on campuses, right? It's I mean, in decline. It's in and, decline. And the millennials, all the statistics show that fewer and fewer millennials care about free speech. In fact, they want to rewrite the constitution. That's right. So, well, and so, that's what Margaret Thatcher said, that maybe there can be too much, too much of a, thing with free speech. No, it was uh, Merkel. Was Mer- it? Angela Merkel, Merkel yeah. yeah. An- Angela Merkel. That's so nice. that same Gen X and Gen Z population that doesn't care about the Faustian trade of giving up their data and you know and privacy for convenience, mm-hmm. they're the same people that don't care about their speech. That's going to come back to haunt them one day. Yeah, so. it really will. Right. And, and, and it's unfortunate. And, and you know, Jeff, you bring up something that is such a concern for me because they're also, it, it occurs like they're unwilling to listen or unwilling to even inquire. That there's there, this cocksuredness that they have that it just frightens me. Like, I was 19 at one time, and I remember I was an arrogant no, but, knucklehead. Yeah, but when we were 19, we did, not, we did not matriculate in an environment where our teachers told us that our sophomoric high school opinions could be le- elevated to the level of human knowledge. <laughs> we were told to shut up. Yeah, we were. And that, and and that you're wrong. But no, these kids are told that, oh, this is, you're, you're brilliant. This is, you're, you're genius. And this gives rise to moral and cultural relativism. And everybody's opinion has moral equivalence and, and cognitive equivalence. So which this, just isn't true. Which just is not true. That, well, that, I, that's why where probability comes in hand. Yeah. You know, it's nice <laughs> yeah. to really know the numbers. And, it it uh, really does. Yeah. You know, I, I think it also comes into, we, we should do a show like on mentorship yeah. and the value of it, right? Yes, which is lo- being lost. It's completely lost. And because I remember that's how I learned. Like I sat at the feet of seven guys that were older and smarter than me yeah. and was pretty much told what worked and what didn't work. And if I stepped outside of those, there was consequence to it, right. you know? And it was it was fascinating. Well, you can blame social media. Who needs mentorship when everybody has a platform to be? Exactly. And you give it a like. That's right. Exactly. That's right. So, Jeff, thanks so much for being here. We got a we got a, a interesting event coming up on Wednesday. Yeah, I want to talk about that, Mike. Yeah, that um, we're doing a, a, a live remote at the Wire in Berwyn, and it's really a celebration of it's a celebration of Berwyn. But the reason we picked Berwyn is because they really do things like inclusion and. Uh, diversity in the right way it hasn't been forced or mandated it's kind of occurred um in a natural kind of way and it's it's a really interesting um town and i happen to know the mayor's been a guest here and so we're going to have an event and really talk about that and look at kind of the the way the world's going and and just look through like a very specific lens and see how it applies in a bigger way so we're doing that wednesday night at seven o'clock at the wire in berwin you know what that is i know yeah Yeah. and also 
my co-host has written an incredible book called Berwin Rules. <laughs> it's funny. It's deep at the same time. It's written in a wonderful voice. You guys should get it at Amazon. It's not that deep. It's just kind of deep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a Berwin kind of deep. Like it's deep a Berwin, ditch pizza. Yeah. It's, a deep, it's a deep ditch pizza <laughs> yeah. depth yeah. kind of book. But it's, it's a good book. The chapters are short. Yeah. Um, That's because my attention span's short. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, you undersell yourself all the time. No, it's, it's it, you know what? It, it's, it's funny, Jay. I, I wrote that book, and after I wrote it, I've read it like a dozen times. I actually enjoy reading it, even over and over again. I think it's a good book. I didn't think it was great. I, I would write it differently today. Yeah. You know, because it was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Well, it's good. And yeah. people should get it. Um, yeah. Before we go, uh, Jeff, tell us how the readers can subscribe yeah. to, to Luckbox. Get luckbox.com. It's just an email away, and that's, and that's free. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. It's that, that, was cool. simple. that was simple. Wow. You guys have a, a really deep marketing department, That's right? simple, right? Getluckbox.com, <laughs> that's right? That's awesome. That's all you have to do. And um, you might want to listen into the Political Trade Podcast. Uh, you might find it fascinating. Yeah. if you. It's kind of where, you know, probability geeks and political freaks come together. You know, Jeff, it's been such a joy to have you here because I've got uh, 16, no, 18 hours of graduate level statistics. So I'm a probability geek. So I, I appreciate that. But it's really yeah. been a joy to have you hey, here. Great, great to be here as well. Thank, thank you. Yeah, for thank you so much. Appreciate it. See you next All right, everyone, week. we're out of here. Uh, we'll see you next week. But see us Wednesday night at the Wire in Berwyn. That'll be awesome. We're Do not great miss time. it. Yes. And there will be cocktails available. Oh, oh liquor. <laughs> liquor, right? One of the things of the good life. <laughs> All right. Bye. Everyone, bye bye. See you next week. Goodbye.